Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah ve salatu vesselamu ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men vela. Kalul musannifu rahimahullahu ta'ala ve nefanallahu ve yahu bi ulumihi fi darin. Amin. So, this actually it kind of leads up to some of the other things. But, uh, actually I don't know if we really need to. I mean, basically what he's going to talk about here is going to be covered in the next part as well, which is that essentially uh, knowledge, there's knowledge of, um, like the things that are sought are the things of this world or they're the things of religion. And there's knowledge that relates to this world and there's knowledge that relates to religion. Both of them are uh, worthwhile depending on what's uh, sought from them. Right, so even religious knowledge, if someone's seeking from it to be like powerful or to take advantage of other people or to manipulate their emotions or something like that, then obviously it's not good. And <coughs> and with worldly knowledge, it's similar. Like if someone attains some level of perf- um, advancement in their field so that they can serve people or so they can bring some good, then that's good. But again, if it's for bad causes, then it's bad. Um, and <coughs> he says that there's no organization of religion without pro- proper organization in this world. And uh, that's, that's interesting. And we'll, we'll come more later as well. Which is basically that like, it's hard to talk about religion if you can't get your world right. And a, a part of what the religion is trying to teach and the guidance that it has is how to get the world right. And they go hand in hand. Right, so it's it's v- this section is very much tied into. Interestingly enough, it's very much tied into what we've been talking about in Dr. Omar's paper about communal obligations, and this section of the Ihya actually talks about communal obligations. Um, that's coming up. <coughs> uh, so he he breaks down like the kinds of knowledge that are necessary for uh, sustainment in the world. So he says, agriculture, weaving, agriculture for nourishment, weaving for clothing, building for dwellings, and politics for cohesiveness and social order. Right. So these are uh, different areas. Right. Assalamualaikum. Uh, all of these are necessary for nourishment, for clothing, for dwellings, and for social order. Assalamualaikum. Um, and then he talks about each of those, but basically it's going into these different types of knowledge. Right. So. If you, it really just shows the way that the, the mind breaks down things, right? It's like, okay, so you're going to have to sustain yourself physically with food. You're going to have to clothe yourself. You're going to have to live somewhere, right? Food, shelter, food, shelter, clothing. And then you're going to have to sustain this political order in some sort of way. And all of those things are going to take different types of knowledge. Um, and hopefully if they're done properly, then they'll have uh, good consequences. <coughs> so you can go back to that, inshallah, if you want to. So that gets us to page 30. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. This starts a new section on praiseworthy knowledge and blameworthy knowledge, their categories and rulings, including an elucidation of what is compulsory for each individual and what is compulsory for the community as a whole, and the elucidation of the extent to which the fields of theology and jurisprudence are parts of the Islamic disciplines and the excellence of the knowledge of the hereafter. All of this is in this section. An elucidation of knowledge that is compulsory for each individual. The Prophet ﷺ, as we know, said that seeking knowledge is an obligation for every Muslim. 
and uh, so he, he goes on to talk about how basically like the scholars of the different fields will say that their knowledge is the most important so the scholars of theology will say that the theology is the thing that you have to know and the scholars of, of, of the law will tell you that the law is the thing that you have to know and the people of the Qur'an and the Sunnah they'll tell you that that's the thing you have to know and the Sufis or the people of spirituality will tell you you have to know the knowledge of God, the inward states and so on and so forth. All of them will uh, claim that all of, theirs is, all of theirs is the most important. Um, in the end, all of these types of knowledge come back to our beliefs and our actions and the things that we... The, our beliefs and uh, the things that we do and the things that we should avoid doing. Our beliefs and the things that we do and the things that we should avoid doing. Assalamualaikum. MashaAllah. Today is a blessed day. So the main thing that he's going to break down in the next couple pages, um, I've decided to stop reading this word by word, by the way, because we'll never finish. So, <laughs> you know, I'll bring out different points and then Assalamualaikum. Welcome back, Sam. Alhamdulillah. Um, so what he's going to basically what he says in these coming pages is if we're talking about what is obligatory upon each individual then that is essentially what is wajib al-waqt so what is wajib al-waqt uh, and <coughs> basically what that breaks down to is that one has to know the absolute minimum that God exists right? the details of it might not be necessary for each person at various stages and then if they're old enough that they need to pray and a prayer time is coming, then they're going to have to know how to pray properly. If they have money, then they're going to have to know how to pay zakat. If they, if they reach the month of Ramadan, then they're going to have to know how to fast. If they have enough money that they make hajj and they're going on the trip, then they're going to have to know how to do that. Basic things. If they have work, then they have to know the rulings that relate to the work that they're engaged in and what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And then he starts to talk about like, that's the base level, right? And the, the next level start to relate to like what is the person exposed to? So the basic basic minimum of belief for example is that God exists, right? And that the Prophet Muhammad is the messenger of God and someone might grow up and they might be told that by their parents and they might learn some basic things and that might be enough for them. But then maybe they get to the point where they go to college and now when they're in college they start engaging with philosophy and with different ideas and worldviews and so on and so forth and now the minimum that's required for them now increased because whatever is necessary for them in order to maintain their religion now becomes an obligation upon them so their wajib al to their obligation of the moment actually can change from time to time <coughs> so it's like a step-by-step -step approach to how one deals with their individual obligation once a person gets to fulfill the basic minimum that's required, like for example, their belief is sound and they don't have any doubts and stuff that need to be answered, they're okay now. They're not required to go further. Once they, once they learn like the basics of how to do their daily life, they're not required to go further. And this is, I think, somewhat important to just, you know, sometimes it feels like the body of religious learning is completely insurmountable. And it's borderline insurmountable if, that, if you want that to be your field of specialization. But if that's not meant to be your field of specialization, then it's not insurmountable. What you just need to know is like what's going to keep you going. At, at a minimum level is what's going to keep you going and what like keeps you, you know, inspires you to keep on improving and so on. And what goes beyond that then is uh, there are things that are they're recommended but they're not required. Uh, and the same applies for like the, the rulings and work and business and so on and so forth. <coughs> uh, 
he says, For it is obligatory for him to be apprised of anything that may relate to him in the domain of prohibited manners. For example, if he were wearing silk clothing upon embracing Islam or residing in an unlawfully obtained property or gazing at a woman he could marry, it is obligatory, obligatory for him to be made aware of these prohibitions. He can marry meaning that's that's not mahram to him. Someone that he's not supposed to be looking at like that. Right? So these things, then the person has to know all these things. As for the creed and actions of the heart, knowledge of them is obligatory in accordance with one's thoughts. For example, should doubt arise in him concerning the meanings of the two testimonies of faith, it would be obligatory for him to learn that which permits him to efface all doubt. If he dies, however, having had so no such thought, he would still have died in Islam. Right? So like if he didn't have those issues, he doesn't have to deal with them, or she doesn't have to deal with them. Um, and again, these thoughts, they might... For some people, they might worry about them. Some people, they might not. Like even even in the world that we live in, by the way, like even in in this like complex modern world with all of these ideas and stuff, there's still some people that are like, no, I'm good. Like I don't need to know all that stuff. I just believe in God. I don't need to complicate it. I'm good to go. And then there's the rest of us who like to think a lot. Uh, therefore, this is an interesting section. He says, therefore, should he reside in a region in which innovation has become pervasive and people openly discuss heretical ideas, it is appropriate that he be protected upon reaching puberty for, from these th through instruction in the truth where it applies in these matters. For if he submitted to false doctrines, it would be obligatory to cleanse his heart of them. That is likely to be achieved only with difficulty. For example, if he were a Muslim merchant in a region in which usury had become a pervasive practice, it would be obligatory for him to learn to protect himself from such transactions. So this, but this raises an interesting question, right? So he's saying, like, if you so, think about what he said. He said, if you live in a place where there's all kinds of ideas that are questionable, then the person needs to be ready to engage with them once they hit the age of puberty, because now they're responsible. So this is something interesting to think about, kind of like on a community level, right? The most of the conversations that I've been having with uh, with people around coming of age and stuff has not been at this. It's been like, make, teach them how to pray properly, teach them basic beliefs, but not how to like actually think about the world around them and the challenges that they face and stuff. I think Dr. Jackson was working on something on this regard, but uh, I don't know if or when it will become public. Uh, he was using it in like his private life, you know, how to like, like part of teaching religion in the West and his perspective is that you have to treat, you have to deal with the um, like overall development of thought in the West. You know, like you have to talk about secularism and you have to talk about liberalism and you have to talk about modernity and all of these things. Otherwise, you can't really, because inevitably the person who grows up in the West is being affected by all those things either way. So when they come into thinking about their religion, if they don't understand that those trajectories, then it's going to affect uh, how they perceive things. So this is all uh, these obligations, and of course, there's also the obligations of the heart. You know, to know that, to know what things I should be avoiding, what things I should be doing, and so on. Um, he says that uh, I think this is an important paragraph. He says, when you have become aware of this step-by-step -step process, you will know that this is the path of certainty in this matter, and realize that each servant, in the course of his states, day and night, will always be subject to the varying circumstances that affect his acts of worship and mutual conduct, each of which brings with it renewed obligations. It is thus necessary to ask about each singular incident as it befalls him, just as it is necessary to immediately learn and comprehend those events that he expects to occur in the near future. 
So basically part of what's being said here is that we share in certain basic obligations and after that people have their own paths. And they have certain things that are going to be more important to them or less important to them and that's going to depend on their trajectory in life and the things that they're learning, the things that they're specializing in and so on. Okay, So this is all about individual obligations. Then he moves on to the elucidation of the knowledge that is a communal obligation. <coughs> and as we've talked about before, that there are the individual obligation is that which you are personally responsible for and nobody else can really help you with it. You can't offload it onto someone else. And the communal obligation is something, they're generally kind of like things that are bigger in a sense or more complex that they have to be taken care of. The body of the Muslims is responsible of taking care of certain things. And it's not that everybody has to do it, but some people have to do it on behalf of the whole. Okay, so that's the communal obligation. He says, communal obligations include every form of knowledge that is indispensable to the establishment of the affairs of this world. Okay, so that's the basic definition. What, what is gonna be a communal obligation? Every type of learning and knowledge that's necessary to establish the affairs of this world is a communal obligation. One of the things that you see is we learn from this is that the Muslim community is supposed to do for self at some level. Right? Like this is, uh, we're supposed to be able to internally understand what are the things that we need to deal with life and who are the people who are going to go into these fields and specialize them, how are we going to support them and so on. So he says, for example, such as medicine, uh, which is necessary for the pres preservation of healthy bodies and mathematics, which is necessary for financial transactions and the division of wealth. Uh, you know, without if should a region be without someone who practices these disciplines, the people of that region will fall into straitened circumstances. So there should be at least some people who are specialized in it. He says one should not be astonished by our, our saying, medicine and mathematics are among the obligations of the community, for the foundational crafts are also communal obligations, such as agriculture, the manufacture of cloth, and governance, even cupping. For were a region to be void of one who practices cupping, devastation would overtake its residents, and they would become anxious at being exposed to this devastation. Right, so basically what he's saying is these are all things that are necessary for, for life and for community. And things that are necessary for life and for community, then we have to pay attention to them. Some of those things are required. Some of those things are virtuous. Some of those things... Um, some of those areas of knowledge might be actually blameworthy. So he mentions like magic, people dealing in magic. There might be things that are neutral. Um, knowledge of poetry that doesn't have anything bad in it. It's neutral. He's arguing that it's neutral here. Um, certain other things are praiseworthy, like the study of the religious sciences can be praiseworthy. And then he talks about uh, various categories of the religious sciences. Um, so this is on page 39 now, if, if you're following in the book. So on page 39, he gets into the various categories of the religious sciences. And he says, as for those disciplines that are praiseworthy, they are the fundamentals, the branches, the preliminary aspects, and the supplemental branches. So these four areas of learning, that makes sense when you listen to them. So the first is the fundamentals, which are the Qur'an, the Sunnah, the consensus of the community, and the traditions of the companions, he uses. So these are like foundational things in religion. How do we know what the religion is? We know from the Qur'an, from the Sunnah, from the consensus of the Muslims, and from the, pra and from the narrations and traditions of the companions is very important right this is how we understand because we might think something is one way but when we look at how the companions understood it it may be that they understood it differently 
Right? So all of these things then are in the foundations. <coughs> Second category is the branches, subsidiary branches of knowledge. So uh, these are things that are, uh, among them are things that are deduced. All right, so like, for example, he says the Prophet ﷺ said, let not the judge pass judgment while he is angry. So one can conclude from that statement that someone shouldn't pass judgment when they need to use the restroom or when they're hungry or when they're in pain from an illness. It's not directly there, right? Like the text is saying, don't pass judgment if you're angry. So he says, you can also understand from that, another layer is that if you're sick, if you're... So anything that's going to put you in a similar kind of like uh, mindset then you s it would still apply. He says, this category is comprised of two subcategories. And this raises a really interesting question, uh, or a really interesting topic, kind of. And it it's opens here, and then he gets into it more uh, later on. But we'll, we'll see what happens here. This category is comprised of two subcategories. One of them is involved with the public good in this world and is comprised of the pursuit of jurisprudence. Those who are accountable for it are the jurists, and they are the scholars of this world. This is a really interesting statement, right? Especially if you consider this whole scholar-activist divide business that is going on. <coughs> so what is he saying right here? Did you catch it? One of them is involved with the public good in this world, and it is comprised of the pursuit of jurisprudence. Those who are accountable for it are the jurists, and they are the scholars of this world. Uh, who understands the public good? He's saying the people who understand and analyze the public good are the people of fiqh. This is really interesting, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> sit, with, sit with it for a little bit. And i give you something else to read. I just have to find the name of it. Assalamualaikum Ustaz. Ustaz John, alhamdulillah, uh, I have to find my phone so I can find the name of the paper. Uh... It's not a paper, actually. It's only a few pages that relate to this question. It's called, do you guys know Recep Sentürk? He's a scholar in, in Turkey. Uh, it's called Ottoman Heritage and Modern Challenges. Recep Sentürk, R-E-C-E-P. It's an interview. I'm imagining if you search it, you'll probably find it. It's in Kalam Research, kalamresearch.com. So there's a question that they ask him in here, which is the point of what I'm bringing up right now. There's a question that they ask him in here. They tell him, you've spoken about the relationship between fiqh and sociology. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So in his, his like uh, academic training, outside of his madrasa training, is in the social sciences. So he's, he's a professor of the social sciences. So he says, basically what he says is that fiqh asks the question, Fiqh assesses human actions, what they should be. And social, the social sciences assess human actions. They claim only from the category of what they are, not from what they should be. But in reality, it also talks about what they should be. But in the end, both of them are dealing with the same subject matter, which is human action. And he says that, so from, from the perspective of Muslim civilization, and the perspective of Muslim civilization, it was within the realm of fiqh that all of the disciplines of social science got dealt with. 
economics got dealt with, society got dealt with, politics got dealt with, all of them got dealt with within the realm of the study of fiqh. So you're coming from that, you're coming from the perspective of the Islamic sciences and the worldview of the believer, and you're applying your methodology towards these realities, and so they get dealt with in the realm of fiqh. Okay? So then what happens is you have in the modern period the development of the social sciences, which are meant to be an objective an objective approach to analyzing the world and the things that human beings do. And so, and, and then you, you, you use your social science techniques and whatever and you come to conclusions about what people do and what would be best for them in life. But essentially it's the same subject matter. So then what happens when you have, uh, he's like, how weird would it be if we were to go to Cambridge and Oxford and replace all of the classes in their economics department with classes in, in like the fiqh of transactions and all of their classes in philosophy with stuff from our theology and all of their classes in psychology with stuff from spirituality, Islamic spirituality and so on and so forth he's like you wouldn't have a western civilization anymore you'd have a muslim civilization he said and that's what happened to us <laughs> so you develop all of these institutions and when you go and you study all of the different disciplines you're studying, you study all of them from the perspective of Western social sciences. So all the Muslims that are growing up and studying now in these big universities in their own lands are studying the Western approach to how to assess human actions. So what is the consequence? The consequence is a Western civilization. Just it has Muslims in it. <laughs> so he says, one of them is involved with the public good of this world and it is comprised of the pursuit of jurisprudence. Those who are accountable for it are the jurists and they are the scholars of this world. It's a very interesting premise. It's a, it's a big one. I think, in, I mean, I don't, I'm just sharing what uh, Dr. Rajab said and then what's being said here. I think it's something to sit with because I think a lot of times we look at these things as if like, no, that's not an area of religion. It just has its own specialists. Well, like, and that's what relates to, I think, Ustad Fuad's class on Wednesdays about, um, like, getting our worldview right. Is that, yeah, it might not be, like, an area that's directly related to Revelation, but where is your worldview coming from? If your worldview is not coming from within your own tradition, then you're going to come to the wrong conclusions in that area because you're looking from a different angle. You're not looking from the right angle. And that's, that's like, a really... Uh, is there's going to come more. It's a really profound concept. Allah protect us. <coughs> That's why, you know, there's one thing that I appreciated about... Well, I don't know if I should say this because it's recorded. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> the third category of knowledge is that which is the tools that are necessary to engage with knowledge. So you have, like, foundations, you have subsidiaries then you have the tools that relate to the knowledge itself like for example the Arabic language grammar logic did I skip number two yeah, no subcategories this one the jurisprudence stuff oh the subcategory my fault yes 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 second subcategory is involved with acts beneficial for the hereafter so this is also from the furwa some things that are beneficial for the hereafter, which is basically the second half of Ihya al-Numidin. Of, of not this book, but this is book number one of 40 chapters. 
So the last twenty, the last twenty chapters of the book relate to that topic. Uh, the third category that concerns the preliminary aspects provides the necessary tools, such as the discipline of the Arabic language and grammar and so on. So these are things that you need in order to engage with knowledge. And then number four is the disciplines that like supplement all of that stuff. So the study of the Qur'an, the study of the Hadith, um, the study of the methods of, of derivation and so on, all of that helps to flesh out all of those other areas. Um, then he kind of, uh, then he starts talking about fiqh a little bit. He goes in on fiqh right now. <laughs> Pretty hard. I kind of like it as someone who spent a good chunk of my life studying fiqh. Um, so he says that, I swear, and it relates to, again, what we were talking about before. Before, that is on page 42 now. The jurist, therefore, must be knowledgeable of the law of governance and the means of mediation between people when desires cause contention between them. The jurist must be the ruler's teacher and guide on the path of governance and control of the people in order to set right their affairs in this world. So basically, what is the jurist dealing with? The one who's giving you the rules of what you can and can't do in life? They're dealing <coughs> with the organization of life. Right? They're dealing with the organization of affairs in this world. So they're the ones that tell you, you can do this, you can't do that, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. All of that relates to how we <coughs> structure and deal with this world. So he says ba the basic realm of this, this, level, this type of scholar is the worldly realm, actually. They're not the one to tell you about like the metaphysical and all of these kind of things. They just tell you how to deal with this life. That's their field. She says, I swear this discipline is also related to religion, though it is not in and of itself religion. Rather, it mediates worldly pursuits. For the world is the sown field of the hereafter, and religion is only perfected through the world. Worldly dominion and religion are twins. Religion is the principle, and the sultan is the protector. That which has no foundation will soon be raised, and that which lacks a protector is lost. There is no dominion of the worldly realm or regulation without legitimate authority, and the means of regulating disputes is through jurisprudence. So basically, you have to have law and order, you have to have structure, you have to have governance, and it's jurisprudence that tells you how to do all of those things. Um, <coughs> and while governing people through legitimate authority is not an Islamic discipline of the first degree, it supports, without it supports those principles without which religion cannot be practiced completely. Similarly, recognizing the methods of good governance is necessary for religion. Thus, it is well known that the pilgrimage can only be completed by employing an armed escort to protect the pilgrims from the Bedouin along the pilgrim path. However, the pilgrimage is one thing, while traveling the path to the pilgrimage is a second thing. Organizing the armed escort to allow the pilgrimage to be completed is a third thing, and the knowledge of the means of armed defense, the use of ploys and intrigue, and the applicable conventions is a fourth. In summary, the practice of jurisprudence is the mastery of the various means of governance and safeguarding from harm. It's a really interesting definition of it, right? Do we usually think about it that way? I think we usually think about jurisprudence as like, this is how you pray and this is how you don't pray. And this is what you should do in zakat. And this is what you do if you want to get out of paying zakat. That's generally how we, you know, that's the limits of our engagement with it. They say this is like, this is the entirety of the world order, actually. It's going to give you some insight on it. <coughs> then he gives this interesting uh, hadith. Uh, I'm not sure as to uh, its reliability, but it's interesting nonetheless. Nonetheless, 
He says the statement that is, it says, there are only three types of people who should give a legal opinion. A commander, one under orders, or one who assumes responsibility. So, uh, so basically, who's mutakallif? Uh, mutakallif is, diff- you know, like you have to... So basically, there's a person who actually is in charge. They have to give some sort of guidance, right? And then there's the person who's acting uh, on behalf of the one who's in charge. And then there's the person who's putting themselves in charge when they don't need to. <laughs> Those are the three. <laughs> These are the three. And this uh, thing, this statement is narrated towards the Prophet them. So he says in the commentary, he says, this is the mutakallif, the person who takes, on the or- takes upon himself that obligation, though there is no need. The companions were wary of offering a ruling to the point that each of them would direct the questioner to another companion. They were not wary, however, when they were asked about knowledge pertaining to the Qur'an or the path of the hereafter. And some of the narrations, uh, in place of mutakallif, it says murai, one who's seeking recognition, one who's seeking to be seen. They're basically showing off. For whoever assumes the grave responsibility of issuing legal opinions while he has not been appointed uh, out of necessity seeks only status and wealth. Okay. <laughs> I mean, like, why would you do it? If if you if it's not if you I mean, like, if you think about it, right? If it's not my responsibility to give like a ruling in the religion, why would I want to do it? <laughs> if I'm not the one tasked with it, why would I want to be the one that says like, no, the religion says this and it doesn't say that, and this is a good person and that's a bad person, and this thing is wrong, and that. Because again, we like really limit this whole thing. What is the what is religion telling you? What is right and what is wrong? That's it. It's telling you what's right and what's wrong. Saying this is good and this is bad. This is beautiful. This is ugly. This is right. This is wrong. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. So anytime like we pass an ethical judgment on something, there's where do we get our ethics from? We get our ethics from our understanding of the religion. So you know like when. And I think this is somewhat difficult for people at this point Because we think that we get our ethics from whatever we think is right in our own head And (laughs) it's not like a very uh, objective process, you know Whatever we think is right in our own head There is a level at which that plays out, you know But it has to be tempered and it has to be, you know, understood in the right way That's what he's saying If it has to do with like the hereafter they would they would talk about it. It has to do with like Quran, and they know that they know the commentary on the Quran on that particular issue. They talk about it. When it comes to like the ruling of you should do this, you shouldn't do that, they're very wary. Radiallahu <laughs> anhu. Okay, skip a couple pages. So then he's talking about all this stuff, you know, going back and forth, and then he says, now if we were to look at it, we say jurisprudence is a communal obligation. And medicine is a communal obligation. So are they equal? Because this is another thing that's that we like, this is like a modern thing in our community too, is that whenever we talk about knowledge, we said the Prophet told us that we should seek knowledge and knowledge is worship and so on and so forth. So any knowledge that's beneficial, it's all beneficial, Ya Bismillah. It's true. But they're not all equal. It's just, I mean, like, uh, it ruffles feathers sometimes, but they're not all equal. So he says, now let's ask the question. Since they're both communal obligations, medicine and jurisprudence, are they equal? This is on 48. 
And he says jurisprudence is better. And he gives uh, a number of reasons. Gives three reasons. One is that jurisprudence is an Islamic discipline derived from the prophetic office. It's a nice, ex- nice expression. It's derived from the prophetic office. In contrast to medicine, which is not a part of the Islamic disciplines. So it's not that it's, it's un-Islamic or something. It's not that it's bad. It's just, it doesn't, co- like the prophet wasn't sent as a physician. Like, and in, in, in that's not, that wasn't, of course he gave guidance in terms of how we should live and how that, like preventive medicine you could say. But he wasn't sent like as a, as a doctor. He was sent as a prophet. And part of what he brought was the jurisprudence. Second, absolutely no one who treads the path to the hereafter, whether sound, this one is interesting to me. Absolutely no one who treads the path to the hereafter, whether sound or infirm, can do without it. Whereas only the infirm have, knowledge, have need of knowledge of medicine, and they are a minority of people. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine that. You say, oh, you know, everyone, if they're strong or they're weak, basically, they need fiqh. They need religious knowledge. Says, but most people don't actually need medicine unless they're weak, and they're not very many people. <laughs> they're the minority. This is before McDonald's exists, <laughs> before the cattle industry, and before all of these foods that aren't actually food, and all of the words that you can't pronounce on your packages, and before people could sit in cars, they had to walk everywhere, and if they wanted to go on a trip, they'd have to ride a camel, and like you know all of that kind of stuff. So. You know, You've probably experienced it. You know, just the consequences of living somewhere where, like, you have to walk everywhere. You know, most places, when we lived in Cairo, we'd walk most places, like, if unless we're going out somewhere, but, like, everyday, day-to-day stuff, most of it you're walking to. You walk to the masjid, you walk to the store, you walk down the street, you walk to the bookstore, you know, you walk back, you do all these kind of things, and, like, just that in and of itself has a big consequence. So this is number two, he says. Number three... Is that jurisprudence functions in proximity to the knowledge of the path to the hereafter, for it considers the physical components of actions whose origin and foundation lie in the attributes of the heart. Hmm. Praiseworthy acts originate from praiseworthy attributes that assure salvation in the hereafter, while blameworthy acts originate from blameworthy attributes. The bond between the limbs and the heart is not secret. So jurisprudence is connected to the hereafter because the actions are connected to the heart, and the heart is the issue of the hereafter. So they go hand in hand. So it's still connected. And whereas medicine obviously deals with something else. Again, this is not to... Don't misunderstand this. Medicine's a good field. You know, people practice medicine. They help people. They save their lives. They improve their condition, so on and so forth. Those are all good things. But he's just making this distinction between uh, the understanding. Then he says, now we were to say, all of this deals with... All of the fiqh, it deals with the knowledge of this world, he said. Right? So what about the knowledge of the path of the hereafter? What is that? Right, so, so you spend all this time now, you know, he does this kind of like back and forth, which you see sometimes in the old books. It's like, if, you, if it said to me, then why did you do this? Then the answer to that is this. And it said that you did this, and so on. So, so there's like, like a dialogue that's going on in the midst of the text. He says, if you were to say, set forth for me in detail what the knowledge of the path of the hereafter entails and point out its basic features, even though it may not be possible to delineate completely its specifics, know then that it entails two categories. So he's saying, if you ask me then about the knowledge of the hereafter, know that it's two parts. Part number one is ilman mukashafa. And part number two is ilman mu'amalat. Mm-hmm. 
So the first category, first category, is the knowledge of unveiling. This is going to get a little bit. You have to, you have to follow it a little bit. The knowledge of the unveiling. So, the knowledge of unveiling is esoteric knowledge. It is the culmination of all of the fields of knowledge. So what is he saying? He's saying all of these areas of learning in Islam, they're meant to take you to a point where there's a knowledge that you get in your heart. It's a knowledge that is an unveiling in the sense that the veils of worldly existence, the veils of desires and and sicknesses of the heart and so on and so forth, they're, they're lifted and lifted and lifted until a, as a person comes to a deeper and deeper knowledge experientially of God. And so there's an unveiling that occurs in that process. But it's something that you can't really talk about. But it's the constant, like you can't put words on it to say like that moment when, you know, you, you put effort in, you put effort in and you, you fight against your bad qualities and you purify your nafs and all of these things. And then you have moments where you stand up in prayer and it's like nothing else in the world exists and all of your problems are gone and so on and so on. This is unveiling. Those mo- so there's, there's all the things that get between us and God, which are not really real in the first place, then those go away and we have direct knowledge of God. That's only the realm of the heart can do that. And it's not cerebral thing to understand. Right? Uh, Ibn Atta'ala, secondary, Rahimahullah, he says something beautiful. He says that... Uh, Glorified is the one who veiled us from him by that which doesn't exist alongside him. <laughs> like how powerful is the one who veiled his creation from him by that which doesn't exist alongside him. Meaning like Allah is ultimately the ultimate reality of everything. Everything else is just, it's as if it doesn't exist. It exists, but it's as if it doesn't exist in front of the magnitude and the, the magnificence of Allah. And yet all of it has been made as the bar- as the thing that blocks us from knowing Allah. <laughs> so like, he's, it's it's an amazing uh, Ibn Al-Ta'ala's different thing. So he says one of the Gnostics said, "I fear a bad ending." This is this part is very interesting and a little bit scary to tell you the truth. So, the knowledge of unveiling is esoteric knowledge. It is the culmination of all the fields of knowledge. One of the Gnostics related Arifin, "I fear a bad ending." For whoever has no share of this knowledge, the smallest share of it is to affirm its veracity and consent to it for those who have a share in it. This is an interesting statement. So he's saying, I fear for the person that doesn't have this type of knowledge, that eventually when their ending comes, it won't be a good ending. So what is the least amount of this knowledge? This Ilmun Mukashifa, what is the least amount of this knowledge? It is to recognize that it's true and that, uh, and that some people have it. This is what he said. This is the least. The least is to affirm its veracity and consent to it for those who have a share in it. This is very, very interesting because, I, at least in my experience in the Muslim community, we like to believe that we're all the same. That's what we like to believe. You know, Allahu Alam, what the uh, intellectual lineage for that one is. But we like to believe that we're all the same. And it's true, we're all the same. But it's also true that we're not all the same. Right? Like Abu Bakr is the same as the Prophet them in the sense that they're both human beings. But Abu Bakr and the Prophet them are not the same. Abu Bakr and Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhum are the same in the ter- sense that they're, they're both human beings. 
but they're not the same in the sense that Abu Bakr is Abu Bakr, right? So he's saying that basically you have to recognize that there are people who have a close and r- and real understanding of Allah that can only be gained through the heart, just to recognize that they exist. <laughs> this is the least level to at least recognize that they exist, and you know. But I I feel that we don't really think that all the time. Hmm? Forty nine at the top. So, which is really interesting because basically all this is saying is that there are people who are called awliya. And it's a basic premise of Aqidah. It's there in Imam Al-Tahawi's Aqidah Tahawiyah, like one of the most famous books in Aqidah that all different camps take, is that that you have to believe in the miracles of the awliya. If you believe in the miracles of the awliya, then that means you believe in the awliya. You believe in like close friends of Allah. Which is to say that like there are some people they have a special relationship with Allah that's all this is another related whoever has two traits innovation and ostentation will not be endowed with this knowledge this, this like knowledge of the heart of God if they have innovation or ostentation they will not have this knowledge because they have to follow the sunnah of the Prophet there's, there's no way to true real knowledge of the heart that's not a fitna now, sometimes a person can have understandings they can have Openings, even in the in the books of spirituality, that they can even have what norm what people would consider to be miracles, but they're not actually miracles. They're a punishment <laughs> when they come from someone who's not close to Allah. They can have something that's seemingly miraculous, and actually, all that's doing is it's delaying their punishment. It's it's not actually miraculous because it's it's a it's istidraj. It's not karama. Anyways, the point is that you can't have these things with innovation. The, the path to the knowledge of God is the path of the Prophet there is no exception don't, don't be fooled by like any sort of other paths or ideas or things that people take and they get some sort of understanding of these metaphysical realities because they meditated on a mountaintop in the cold for a really long time until they became warm like that doesn't mean that they, kn- they knew God I mean, something happened but this doesn't mean that they were on the path of the Prophets and the second is that they can't have ostentation Meaning they can't like think that they're better than people They can't look down on people They can't be doing it to show off Otherwise they won't get this knowledge And it has been said Whoever is infatuated with this world Or captivated by passion Will realize nothing of it Though he may realize the knowledge of all other fields The smallest penalty for whoever denies this knowledge Is that he will be afforded no part of it That's the smallest penalty They won't have any part of it so they love this world, they're overcome by their passions, they won't have any of this knowledge. That applies, by the way, to people of religious learning. Right? This is not like a, someone could study all of the books of law and all of the books of hadith and all of the books of theology and be the most profound scholar in the world and they could love this dunya and be overcome with passions and they'll have none of this in their heart. The actual like deep knowledge of Allah. Yes, Sattar. It is the knowledge of the people of veracity. I have to finish this. I know we need to pray Maghrib, but we have to finish this point at least. Um, maybe just this, this little piece and then we'll stop, inshallah. It is the knowledge of the people of veracity and those brought near. Here I mean al-muqarrabun, those brought near. Here I mean the knowledge of unveiling, which is interpreted as a light that appears in the heart when it is cleansed and purified of blameworthy traits. 
Through that light, certain matters are unveiled. Previously, one used to hear the names for these matters and imagine vague meaning. So basically what he's saying is that it's a, as we've talked about before, if you're in a room and it's completely dark, you look, at the, you look around the room and to you, the room looks, everything's the same. It's completely dark, right? If you add a little bit of light in the room, you start to look around the room, you can discern a few things. You might not be able to discern other things. You might be able to tell, like if you're in the library, you'll be able to tell that there's something on the walls. I'm not really sure what they are. You add like a little bit more light, you realize that those are bookshelves, but you can't tell what books are on it. When the light becomes more, you can see the books, you can read the titles, so on and so forth, right? All of that is with the physical eye. But with the eye of the heart is, is similar. In the sense that there's things that the heart can understand about its relationship with God that are related to the light that is in the heart. So if there's no light that's in the heart, they just don't get it. And if there's a little bit of light, they can see a little bit more. And if there's more light, they can see a little bit more. So these, so what he's saying in this section that comes after it is, there's like concepts and things that they heard about. You know, it, we might feel like that sometimes. Like there's stories that you hear about people, and you're like, man, that's an amazing story. I can't imagine that ever happening. <laughs> like, I, like to me or to, I, I can't imagine how that would ever even take place. Because, so these are like words and ideas, even like the idea of sincerity. Sometimes you're like, wow, what is that actually like? Can you imagine actually being sincere? That would be incredible, you know? And so, but as the light of the heart increases, then those words, now they become, you see them in a different way. You understand them in a different way. Those concepts become more clear and so on. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. Okay. There's no good place to stop in any time that's going to be reasonable to stop, so we're just going to have to stop. So this is the top of page 51. Uh, we mean by the knowledge of unveiling that the cover is raised until the evident truth in these matters manifests itself as clearly as if it was seen by the eye. So we'll, we'll continue there next time, inshallah. Okay. We break from Maghrib.